too. Welcome to the Virtual Real Estate Investing Podcast. It's just me and Franco today. How you doing, Franco? Doing good, man. We're uh, we're raising money. We got our storage deal uh, closing date rapidly approaching. I booked some golf for this weekend. I'm happy. I'm very good. How are you? Excellent. Rock and roll, man. And I don't know why I was calling you Franco so awkwardly there. Uh, my bad. But uh, nice. Let's jump into it. Um, try to keep um, clear and concise. We're going to talk about state of the union with wholesaling. Then we're going to talk about raising money. So first, let's talk about wholesaling as a market, as an opportunity. What's going on in wholesaling August 2021, Frank? I think, uh, well, big news, Mike Delpreet, who we follow, he does a lot of single family iBuyer presentations and thought leadership. Um, I think it was, was it a offer? Is it offer pad? Offer pad. Offer pad. They're, the, they're the ones that are not yet public. Right. And they reached uh, profitability within a quarter. Um, first time I've ever heard of an iBuyer um, or someone who buys single family houses all over the country with the intent to resell. Um, or push to an agent. That's what iBuyers are doing. So one of those, uh, they're profitable within a quarter, which you and I have been talking about this for like a year, maybe maybe a year and a half. And we've always said they suck. They're never going to do it. And like, here they are, right? They, they turn profitability. Um, what's, what's interesting about um, OfferPad is they tend to come down market in terms of housing a little bit as opposed to their contemporaries like Zillow, right? Zillow's like, I want to, I want to buy the house in Phoenix, the $400,000 house um, in the outskirts of Austin. Um, and they're starting to go down market a little bit into tertiary markets. But but uh, OfferPad was kind of dealing with investment properties from the beginning, and they're the first ones to turn profitable. So I thought that that was really, really big news. It almost like validates what wholesalers and flippers have been doing for like 100 years um, that can be done at large scale. But it is kind of like scary, right? <laughs> for us. Well- if we look at if if we say the three i buyers are Zillow, um, OfferPad, and um, Open Door, right? I definitely like OfferPad the best, and it's not even close, right? I think Zillow is confused about what they're trying to do. They have the best brand recognition uh, in real estate, but they're confused about how they actually, you know, what they want to be when they grow up. I think I think Open Door is in. Great. I think they have uh, lots of sexiness with them, but I think uh, Open Door, if it gets any steam, I think it'll just be uh, bought by Zillow um, in OfferPad um, or Open Door will will be consumed. But OfferPad, the one Frank said is now profitable, they come from real estate investing background. Like, forget the, the CEO's name, um, but him and his, his, I think it's his brother, maybe brothers, they were successful real estate investors. So, you know, if you have to, pick a horse in that race, if you pick it in the iBuyer race, not who's going to be the most profitable long-term, but in the iBuyer space, I, I like OfferPad as well. Well, it's like Zillow takes the other approach. It's how do we use technology and our systems and processes to um, buy houses and then own all the parts of the transaction, the, the lending, the title, all the transactional stuff. And maybe that works, but I feel like there's a much longer time period it's going to take to transform the real estate transaction industry and to take deals away from agents than it is to simply be a good real estate investor at scale, right? And what I'm getting at is Zillow might end up winning. And imagine if you grabbed 
market share over all those different chunks of a transaction and this big of an industry. Like the upside is still huge, but it's going to take a really long time for Zillow to overcome all the bureaucracy and red tape that we now know is in real estate since we've been doing this for a while. Whereas if you approach it as a real estate investor, like OfferPad did, it's like I buy at 80 cents on the dollar and I resell it. Like if you could do that, you don't need to tack on a mortgage or a title fee or title insurance to a transaction. Like, so kudos to them for being able to do it at scale. Cause I definitely was one of the people doubting um, that you could. So. Yeah. It's with, with Zillow too. I think for you to be like, Hey, Zillow is an awesome com- company and I want to invest in them. I don't think you make that leap unless you are also looking at uh, insurance companies if you're also looking at, you know, I don't know if there's a publicly traded title company of any sorts, right? But uh, you have to look at those other services and be like, how does Zillow actually compare against uh, against those other companies? So let me ask you this though, right? So it sounds like you're like, you know, maybe a little bullish on OfferPad, okay? Which I'm I'm not. I think it's great that they're profitable, um, but I, I'm still not a huge fan. If you look at OfferPad, they're they're an iBuyer, they're a flipper right? They, they flip houses. And you said, do I want to invest in OfferPad or Invitation Homes, right? Invitation Homes is a REIT that buys and holds on to single family homes as rentals, right? Like what, what do you like better in that race? Uh, um, I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a difficult question to answer because I think you're investing in them and there's almost like different strategies. Like if you go to invitation homes, they're holding assets for an extended period of time in mostly stabilized like class A markets. Like they, a lot of their houses are in Southern California, for example. So the demand is going to be there. Rents will go up over time. They're going to be able to fill vacancies. The homes will appreciate, but they're going to pay a higher price for them. And the yield is going to be a little lower. So they're a REIT, right? Um, whereas you go to the other side of the spectrum, if you're betting on the likes of Zillow or OfferPad or whomever, you know that there's a higher risk, right? But there's a higher chance that that equity is going to triple um, and it'll be represented in the stock price. So it's like, I mean, I'm a gambler. So I'm going to say I buyer. Like, I'm not going to invest in invitation homes in my portfolio because it's simply too boring for me. I already have one REIT, um, Essential Properties Trust in my portfolio. That's enough. I'm done. What about you? Yeah, I well, I, I think, you know, the that, that discussion, uh, a REIT that holds single family rentals, or a growing flipping company, like that is a metaphor for what's the better real estate investing strategy, right? Like, should you buy and hold properties or should you flip properties, right? And I think the real estate answer for me is flip properties to build cash, right? Wholesale properties, flip properties to get your cash uh, to, to whatever point you needed to get to. But if you want to create long-term wealth, hold on to the properties, right? And you got to find a balance of cash flow and, and the long-term strategy, but that's how I would look at it. If we look at, at, uh, what stock I would rather own, I don't, I don't know where they're actually trading at, but in my head, I like invitation homes way better. When I look at investing, I want everything we do in real estate. I feel like we have a competitive advantage in real estate, so I'm willing to to take some more risk there. But outside of real estate, I only invest in index funds. That's it. I put everything in index fund and I'll assume most of my risk in where I think I've got an advantage. Yeah, fair answer. We're opposites there, but I, I respect your, uh, your opinion. So what does this all mean, right? What we're discussing is a institutional level player 
continuing to establish a foothold down market. I consider single family housing way down market for a Wall Street to be owning those houses, right? They, they typically own skyscrapers in New York City, and now they're owning a single family house on Elm Street in a random part of the country. Right, so w- what does all this mean to people like us that buy and sell single family housing? It's purgatory, baby, right? Um, so wholesaling purgatory, we first heard, I think, from Nick Perry. And he was talking about like some people getting in the rhythm of buying, you know, doing five deals a month and they can never make the next leap, right? Uh, it's hard to get to six figures monthly. Uh, I'm going to re reframe that and say um, purgatory is anyone trying to wholesale or flip at scale? It's all purgatory, right? So I think it's it's like it's like a dumbbell. At one end, you have the super small, super lean operator that flips with big margins, that wholesales with big margins, that is a solopreneur and just uses virtual assistants and, and makes a bunch of money. And then you have companies like OfferPad that at scale, they do really well. And I think anyone in the middle AKA our company is going to have to be really, really good to survive, right? I think doing it at scale um, remotely across the country is going to be really, really difficult. Um, I think for a solopreneur, you'll be able to do it. But if you're trying to have six figure, um, you know, mid six figure months over and over and over again, I think it's going to be really tough, man. Yeah. I So part of me agrees, uh, but I'll, uh, I'll use a buzzword for 2021. I wonder if this pain that people are feeling, particularly on the acquisition side, because it's very, very competitive, is transitory, right? I don't think Wall Street being involved in single family housing is transitory. I think that's going to be here to stay. So I think maybe in cities where they already have a good presence, I think what you're saying is correct. But in smaller cities, right? Like uh, the Colleen Texases of the world. I wonder if we're just in this perfect storm of institutional pressure and competition in bigger cities, driving people to tertiary markets, the interest rates being low and housing appreciating at a rapid price and all the gurus who are saying they're cashing in on all their flips and all this other stuff are just flooding the market. And if once we have a little bit of blood hit the water, if we have you know just as quick of an exit, um, easy come, easy go is what I'm saying. So I'm wondering if we're also just like at the peak of competition. Um, I think we're also in a period where dig, um, outbound marketing is trying to keep up with uh, Verizon and AT&T and people blocking their outbound messages. So we're kind of like in this period across our industry where it's just harder to lock things up, right? And you have buyers on the back end of the deal who I don't even know if their um, underwriting can keep up with home appreciation, right? Like houses are appreciating over the last two years at 25%. That means every wholesale deal you're looking at right now, if, if that continued, it probably won't. But if that continued, that means every single deal you're evaluating is probably a deal. By the time you're done flipping that house, you probably would make money, right? So buyers, but buyers can't underwrite that way, right? So we're just in this crazy environment where the competition's crazy high on the acquisition side. Seller's expectations are really high. Everyone knows the housing market's really hot. Carriers are compressing marketing and buyers don't know what a deal is and what it's not. So it's like, what a shitstorm that is, right? So I, I feel like this might be transitory. I, I don't know what your thoughts are though. I think the patient person that already has a bunch of money in the bank, they, they sit on the sidelines right now. 
But I think the hard part is, is that same person has been sitting on the sidelines for the last 10 years, right? Because how long are they going to say we're, we're almost to the top, right? So how do you evaluate a deal? I think it's tough and I don't have a perfect answer, right? Um, one suggestion that I would make that I think we're going to see more and more is I think we're going to see individual investors repurposing things as short-term rentals, right? So let's say you evaluate something as a long-term rental. It's it's worth $100,000. And you know as a long-term rental, it's still worth about $100,000. But if you can turn it into a short-term rental and make a bunch more money, you might be able to buy that thing for 120 and still be really good, um, have a, a really solid profit, right? So that potentially is going to help investors start paying more. And some of these investors that are really struggling for deal flow right now, I think we're going to see some of them start getting pushed uh, creatively to short-term rentals. Yeah, I agree. I think um, short-term rentals is one of the last um, places where you see obvious inefficiency between pricing and rental rates. Even with the higher property management costs, which people are also starting to figure out how to reduce. It used to be like, hey, you want to do a short-term rental in Charleston? The property management costs are between 13 and 20%. People are starting to figure out how to whittle that down, but you're still being able to rent these houses that cost 200, 300 grand at rental rates of 5,000, maybe on the extreme end, 7,000, you're getting a two to one ratio. It's it's out there. And uh, I mean- you're not going to find a single uh, long-term rental like that. So I think you're right. I think uh, wholesalers are going to have to be creative with their marketing. So maybe the next um, thing that becomes in vogue is that city of Florida that has coastal properties, but it hasn't like quite hit the appreciation um, bubble yet, like Cape Coral. Uh, so I, I do agree with you. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. And we should plug um, our friend Kirby's course. Uh, go check that out. Um, He's doing some awesome stuff in the short-term rental space. Um, let's talk about raising money next, Frank. Um, you have done the majority of the money raising for us. I've done some and I'm helping where I can, but you're really leading that effort. So uh, how do you get started raising money? What does our money raising look like these days? Talk to me. Yeah, so um, well, so for context, we've raised a couple million dollars to buy single family housing. So we've used private money and hard money uh, to buy all of our flips over the last 15 months. And it's been really, really good. Um, now we're raising money for a self-storage facility because we're now cutting our teeth in commercial real estate. We hope this is the first of many deals that we do. Um, and we're, that's underway. How do you how do you get started, I guess, is the question. And I think in either case, like you got to just start telling people that you're running a real estate business for profit and you're looking for capital partners. This, the biggest problem I think people have is they're just simply scared to tell people what they're doing, but it's much easier to have the initial conversation or to speak about a specific deal if the person knows that you're in the business and that it's of interest to you. Like imagine you got a wholesale deal under contract or you found it yourself and you need 150 grand total project costs. And it's probably three weeks or less, right? Like that's how quick these deals go. And you got to go to somebody you don't have a hard money lender lined up and you got to go to a friend of a friend or somebody and be like, Hey, you got to give me 150 grand. And they've never heard of you doing real estate before. Like the odds of you getting that done are much lower, right? You could, but 
it just depends. So I think you got to be a little um, ahead of your business. So like maybe you have done zero deals, but you still got to go out and tell people that you're raising money because the deal is going to come. So you got to be a little entrepreneurial, I think, particularly on the single family side, because most people are probably not even aware that they can be a lender on a single family flip. Like most people don't even know that. So you have to put that idea in their brain, let it fester, and then go back to them three weeks later. So that's one tip I would have. Um, and then on the, on the commercial side, I'd like to hear your thoughts because you're, you're raising money on this one too. I've done almost all the single family stuff, but you're raising money for the syndication. But I had I have a really basic guidance for doing um, a commercial deal, a syndicate. Um, it's the order of how you pitch to an investor. So they know who you are. They show some interest. You get on the phone, right? I, I like this format. One, ask them what their investment goals are. I try to understand if you're going to be a fit. If someone um, is trying to invest in like a weed farm and trying to triple their money over a one-year period and you're doing a storage facility, like it's not a fit, right? So you might as well just knock that out right at the beginning, right? So make sure you're a match. Two, talk about your business plan for that asset, right? Why do you like that facility or that property? Tell us about the location. What opportunities do you see? Like give, give the big picture and then finally go over the numbers, what the cash on cash return is going to be, the IRR, all that other stuff. And I like that order because it makes the investor feel important. You talked about them, you gave them the big picture and it's not, that's the exciting stuff. It's not as boring as numbers. And then you have to give them the numbers. You, you just give them the numbers at the end. So that, that's like the order I like, but that's, what do you, that's good. What's your, what's your take on uh, the whole capital raising stuff? I think my overarching theme is to raise money through your, your own personality it's really easy to, you know, want to put on like a cowboy hat or to want to put on a used car salesman hat uh, whenever you have to do sales or raising money. So I just believe like be who you are. If you're, you know, I, I tend to be pretty energetic and confident. So that's how I should try to raise money. And if you're more analytical, I think that's how you should try to raise money. So that's my number one is like, you know, use, use your own personality. I love your um, try to ask them what their goals are first. That's something I, I don't do that I should. I think my approach is uh, anytime I'm talking to an investor, I'm very confident in the deal, right? So by the time I am talking to an investor about um, participating with us, like I have a, a high degree of confidence and I think they can sense that confidence. I think we do a you know, we're definitely not perfect, but we do a good job of what I call red teaming the deal. So like, how could this go wrong? You know, where are we failing? What are we missing? What if this happens? What if that happens? So then when we get to investor conversations, they ask some of that stuff, right? Like what are the downside here? What could go wrong? So I always feel really prepared in those conversations. Um, and then I just, you know, try, try to have a good back and forth conversation. Um, clearly I need to, uh, tighten up my pitch a little bit. Mine's not quite as tight as yours, but, uh, I, I think my big thing, be confident, be authentic. And, uh, the, the people you're raising money with are going to be able to see that, you know? Yeah. I, I think, um, it's also, it's also a good reminder for anyone that's doing this for the first time or, or is new to it. Raising money is just like any other sales process. There's a funnel at the top, Right. You maybe for like wholesaling, for example, you have a hundred leads, right? By the time you get to a contract or get a house signed, you know, there's only one left, right? The funnel gets narrower and narrower and raising money 
you might bat a higher average. Like maybe you get 50% of the people you speak to, but you're never going to get 100% of those calls closed, right? So it's one of those things, like remind yourself, you're going to get on the call and you're going to probably do a good job, but some of those people are just not going to invest with you. And it's most likely due to it just not being a fit. Like your investment that you're offering doesn't fit their strategy. And in my experience, when that does happen, it's because the the investor or the limited partner is a greedy bastard. <laughs> Most of the time, it's because the economy's cooking. The NASDAQ has been up like, I think it doubled over the last two years or more. And you're offering something with a cash on cash return of 11% with, you know, with an equity payout at the end. That's a good investment, but they don't care. Like they still don't want it. So I think people just got to be willing to take the hits. Yeah, I, I like the funnel thing. Uh, I think that's that's a great analogy because some people are like, well, I have an uncle who's got a bunch of money and is investing in real estate. So when I ask him, I think he's probably going to say yes. Like, hey, maybe maybe you will, but what are you going to do if he says no, right? And uh, the way I like to look at it is when it comes time to raise money for me, I, I go to my Rolodex, which these days is number one, my cell phone, right? And I start going through my contacts on my cell phone. I'm like, who here do I think would be interested in this deal? And I send them a text and ask them if they want to chat about a deal. And then I do the same thing with social media because I look at all my friends on different social media platforms. And I'm like, who have I talked to about real estate investing before? Who do I think might be interested? And I start reaching out to them. Um, you know, Hopefully it comes off in not a desperate way, like, hey, I need money. But it's like, hey, I've got a deal. We've talked about real estate investing before. If you're interested, let me know. And I try to always make it so it's no pressure. So like if, if now is not a good time or you don't want to invest or you're nervous or anything else, like that's completely cool. I won't ask you another question. I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable, but I want to give them that opportunity too. Here's a question. I like that. Here's a question. How do you communicate to limited partners or investors in a syndication, how much you're going to get paid and why? Mm, I, I think um, like on our, on this first deal, Right, like we, I, I think we say the the structure of how we're going to do it. Right, I, I think we're taking a one percent acquisitions fee, uh, no fee for uh, a, a refi, no fee for sale, no management fee. Right, so you know the only fee that, and we're giving eight percent preferred return, um, and we're taking 50-50 after that. If we look at that structure compared to um, 99.9% of, you know, real estate, private equity, we are giving very favorable terms to the limited partner, right? So, uh, I think anyone that would, would try to shart shoot, shart shoot how that's structured. I don't think really kind of understands how it's, it's normally structured, which, which is fine. And if anyone wanted to say like, Hey, why are you taking these fees? What do you deserve from this? I kind of be like, well, we're, we're putting the whole deal together, right? Like this is an investment without us. These fees need to one, make sure that we're incentivized to max out this investment. It also needs to keep the lights on. So hopefully we can find another deal. And oh, by the way, even with all these fees, here is the IRR that we're projecting to give you, right? And we're going to, you know, hopefully make sure we always do our best to hit that projected IRR or hopefully exceed it. So if um, you find the sweetest deal in the world and the IRR goes through the roof, do you jack up all the other investor fees and share? Or you jack up, I mean, the, the general partner share of the deal? Maybe, right? Maybe. I think... Um, in, in, you have to have some balance of, uh, you know, when the 
general partner does well, the limited partner does well. So when me and you do well, we need our partners to be able to, to do well. We need to tr- try to create an environment where our incentives are as aligned as possible. And that's never going to be a perfect world, right? Um, but hopefully, as we make more money, all of our investors make more money too. And I'm sure each deal we do, we're going to have slight differences on how everything's structured. But I think generally, we'll go with the kind of tried and true uh, private equity model, where as we get better, and we get uh, bigger deals, we'll probably end up charging you know, a management fee, an acquisitions fee, a disposition fee, all those fees that we're going to have associated. But hopefully, we can continue to give uh, great returns to our investors. But wh- what do you think, Frank? Give, give me your thoughts on structure and how you overcome those objections. I, I, think, you, I think you nailed it. I think, you, I think generally, the more experience the general partner has and the greater returns they can project in, in good faith, like you assume they're being honest, the more they deserve to get paid, right? And the bigger the market they're going to create in terms of um, finding limited partners. I think we're just in a particular spot right now where we have this awesome deal, but we are shorter on the experience, right? So we do not warrant charging three different fees at this point in time. So I guess what I'm saying is if I'm a limited partner, if you can find someone that's new, but you can really trust them, like that might, that's a sweet spot, right? Like the, the people that are networked with upstart, you know, mid-sized deals, maybe like $20 million and less, right? Uh, syndications that are not really charging you a lot of fees and giving you massive shares of the deal. I mean, hey man, they're hard to find, but that's where the IRR probably is, right? Um, I know um, our buddies and Taft, Taylor and Laren and them, um, the lowest IRR they've had in their syndications has been, I think, 21%, I think which is pretty awesome, right? Um, and they're kind of in that boat too. And they're giving favorable terms, um, yada, yada, yada. So I, uh, I'm a believer in that. If you've got people you can trust and like, that's where it is. That's where it's at. Sure. I think generally over time, as we, like we've paid different coaches and consultants to like talk to us about our business model and stuff. I think over time, they're going to tell us more and more, we need to charge more fees, right? Because like when in doubt, I think we just the way we're wired, we're always going to be like, we want to make sure we're not being too greedy and we can sleep really well at night. So I think over time, we will probably need to get poked to go in the other direction of like, hey, your your incentives aren't going to be aligned unless you jack up some of these these points here or there, you know? So um, that's not just a real estate thing. That's a business thing. Cody Sanchez, who I follow, she's a big business, um, I guess, uh, consultant, I would call her and a business owner. And she was just live said one of the biggest mistakes almost every business owner makes is they don't charge enough. Whatever you think you're supposed to charge, she's like, add 30% on top of that. So there you go. For sure. All right, man. Great. Uh, hopefully short, concise episode. One of our goals is to bring so much information that people cannot listen to it at 2x. You have to slow it down to 1x or at least 1.25x. So let us know if we achieve that goal. But thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Frank, take us away, man. Hey, another great episode. I enjoyed spending time with you. Uh, Next week, we'll give you guys an update on our storage deal as we keep uh, raising the money for that and hopefully educate you guys on single family housing. Thank you.